church. Let's pray. Father, we praise you as a God who does not do things halfway. We praise you as a God who makes promises and and keeps them. You do not tell us that you will do things if we meet you halfway, but you are a God who has accomplished salvation in Jesus Christ. And we've we've sung about these truths. We are complete in Christ of what He has done, not because of what we have done. We have reveled in the grace that has come to us. What an amazing mystery it is, this gospel. As amazing as it is, as true as it is, we are prone to forget it, Father, in our daily lives. We are prone to live without considering what it means practically day by day, moment by moment. We pray that that you would use your word this morning to remedy that. Once again, tell us the truth. Once again, affirm it to us as truth. Once again, move us by your Holy Spirit to cling to it, to believe and to walk from this place the deep desire to live as people who believe. We need your help in all this, of course, and and we, we pray for it because, once again, you've promised to help us. So please help us. Please bless us, and please be blessed by our worship as we hear the preached word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Please stand with me and I'll read the first 18 verses of this chapter. Hebrews 10 beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. 
He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You may be seated. Most of us have had the the experience you have a you have a car that sounds distinctly different than it did yesterday. Or a body part that does not feel like the other body parts. What what do you do typically? Those of you with a smartphone. You start to do some research, right? You Google it. And the internet will diagnose your car with cancer. So so generally everything leads to cancer on the internet. And so you have to look in other sources. Maybe ask your friends, what could this be? And the, the, the problem is finding reliable information. And... You can go wrong in a couple of different ways. You can diagnose the problem wrongly, and so then you begin addressing a problem that isn't the root problem, and the root problem, therefore, is never fixed. Another way that you can go wrong is you you do diagnose the, the problem correctly, but there's a host of different opinions about how to treat that root issue. So, So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to spin your wheels for a while. We, we talk all the time about our root problem here at Providence. That root problem, of course, is that all human beings have the same ultimate need, which is to live in fellowship with God. And where the problem comes in is that man has rebelled against God and that has resulted in separation from Him in death. So... The problem that needs to be fixed or the issue that needs to be solved is our our sin problem. We need forgiveness in order to return to life and fellowship with God. And it's quite simple, really. But the vast majority of of people, they spin their wheels for one of two reasons. First of all, they they perhaps misdiagnose the root issue. And so they they try a lot of solutions that will then end up leaving the root issue untouched. An an example of this would be perhaps misdiagnosing the problem, thinking that that our real issue in life is is not belonging. I I don't have a people among whom or a place where I feel at home. I don't belong. Now, that is a genuine problem, but it is ancillary to the root problem. 
And if that lack of belonging is treated as if it is the root problem, well, then the root problem, which is separation from God because of sin, that's going to go unaddressed. Another way that we, that we go wrong is, is that we, we identify correctly the main problem, but, but we try a host of, of solutions to fix that problem. Again, our main problem is that separation from, from God is, is because of our sin. And so, so we, we perhaps recognize that. We diagnose it correctly. We say to ourselves or, or to others, or maybe in our own heart, I, I know that sin is my biggest problem. It separates me from God. So I'm going to do as many good deeds as I can in order to make it up to God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work for His favor. And the Bible teaches that you can't fix the problem that way. Good, good works don't make up for sin. The, the author of Hebrews is operating on the foundational truth that man's root problem is not the difficulties of this temporal life. Now, th- those are legit problems, but not the root problem. The root problem is separation from God because of sin. And, and, and He is presenting to us, the whole Bible is presenting to us, there is one solution to that problem. And if you try any other solution, or if you treat any other problem as, as the ultimate problem when it isn't, you are going to be in trouble eternally. Forgiveness through the finished work of Jesus Christ is the only solution. We need fellowship with God. Sin stands in the way. Only Jesus brings forgiveness so that that sin is removed. And today we're drawing near to the conclusion of this main section in Hebrews It's a section that extends from 4.14 to 10.25. It's the main teaching section of of the book of Hebrews. And and it has been communicating to us over the course of weeks one idea mainly. Don't fall away from Jesus' priesthood because it does what the Levitical priesthood could not. Our, Our passage this morning is something like a conclusion just before some final exhortations in verses 19 through 25. And, and here is that conclusion. This, this draws together what has been taught from 414 until now. This is, this is the big idea. Jesus did what the law could not do, which is cleanse the conscience and provide forgiveness. There is no further need for a sacrifice. The question for us to consider as we, as we walk through the Word this morning the question that I, I pray that you will ask yourself as we're looking at the Word. Does my life reflect the truth that I understand the problem and I've trusted in the one solution? Let me say that one more time. Does my life reflect the truth that I understand the problem and I have trusted in the one solution? The author takes a number of steps to get us to his conclusion. And the first step is is that the law couldn't perfect. The law couldn't perfect. Let's look at verse 1 again. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The best place to start, the best thing to do first when we come to one of these really long sentences 
in a New Testament epistle is to try to find the main clause. That, that is, find, find the subject of the sentence and find the verb in the sentence. And sometimes it can be difficult to tell, but the main clause here is, is this. The law cannot make perfect those who draw near. If, if we were to kind of pull out some of, some of these phrases that are attached to that clause, just whittle those away and get down to the, what's the main idea here? The law cannot make perfect those who draw near. And he identifies for us once again there the root problem. Remember that when this author talks about making perfect a person or perfecting the conscience, he means by that, by that word perfecting, he means true cleansing from sin which brings one into God's presence. True cleansing from sin which brings one into God's presence. He doesn't mean by the word perfection what we tend to use, what we, we tend to mean when we use that word. He, he is not pointing to an absence of any moral defect, physical defect, mental defect, or any other kind of defect. Perfection is true cleansing from sin, which brings one into God's presence. And again, being in God's presence, that is the most important thing for a human being. We weren't created for life without Him. We were created for life with Him. And and in a very real sense, since Genesis chapter 3, when man fell, man has been living like a fish out of water. We need to be with God. Sin separates us from God. And so we need to be cleansed from that sin so that we can be with Him. And the author once again, therefore, points us to the, the real problem, the root issue. Separation from God because of sin. We need to be cleansed and forgiven. Perfected is what we need, to use his term here. And and what he's saying in this this main clause in the first verse is, the law couldn't do that. By the word law, he has in mind not just the the do's and don'ts of of the Mosaic law, but he, he has in mind all of the mechanisms provided by the law, the priesthood the sacrifices, the tabernacle, all of that stuff that was given to God's people through the law of Moses, all of that together, he's calling it the law and he's saying that couldn't cleanse a person from sin and thereby give them access to God. So what we most needed, the law couldn't do. And the author has several things to revisit regarding that. He's talked about all of this already. He's going to, he's going to remind us about these things. Several reasons that we shouldn't be surprised about the inability of the law to perfect. The first of those reasons is that the law was but a shadow of the good coming things, not the form of these realities. And that comes right off the page there in verse 1. How many of us have ever needed to travel internationally? I'm just curious. Now, to, to, to do that international travel, like to, to get overseas, did you, A, buy a ticket on an airliner, or B, by a picture of an airliner. I'm guessing nobody has done, done the latter. You, you, you buy the ticket. You don't buy the picture. Because the picture can't get you there. The law and its provisions for worship merely pictured, they pictured the reality of the good things to come. They pictured a solution to our problem. They themselves didn't provide a solution to our problem, which is sin. So, so we shouldn't be surprised at all that the law couldn't perfect sinners because it was just a picture 
of the coming solution. A second reason we shouldn't be surprised at the inability of the law to perfect the sinner is that those shadows, they were offered over and over and over, and, and that should tell us something. They're offered over and over and over. There's this constant nature of those sacrifices. He writes in verse 1, he, look at how he wants to hammer this home. The same sacrifices continually offered every year. They are constant. The constant nature of that ministry indicated this is not fixing the problem. Look, look down at verse 2. He expounds on this. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be, to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Those of you who have nailed a nail into a wall, when, when do you stop? I guess it depends on if you're trying to hang a picture, but if you're like trying to attach two boards or something, you, you stop when the head is flush with the wall. You know, like when it's, when it's all the way in, you can stop hammering. The, the job is done. When the job is finished, you can stop now. If the old covenant sacrifices were the right hammer for the nail, they would have stopped because the work would have been done. But people continued under sin, proving that those sacrifices didn't work. Look at verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And he, he seems in verse 3 to be referring specifically to the Day of Atonement. We have that, that one sacrifice that's offered, a sacrifice that's offered on behalf of the priest and his family and then offered on behalf of all the people at the same time. Later in the passage, he, he mentions priests daily standing and making offerings. And those daily offerings, those were sacrifices that were brought by individuals throughout the year. So, every day under the old system, every day, there are animals being slaughtered, and then once per year, there's this major offering intended to atone for the priests and the people as a whole. And, and, and we, don't, we don't tend to really put ourselves into that place and think about what that would have been like, but it's helpful to do so occasionally. The sights, the sounds, the smells, the textures of organized ritual animal slaughter. These are things that are, that are lost on us because of where we are in history, where we are in salvation history. The tabernacle is a very bloody place. Many animals being, being slaughtered there every day. So think, think, think about what you would hear if you, were, if you were just there and you just closed your eyes, what you would hear. You would hear implements being sharpened, you would hear animals making their normal animal sounds. You would hear animals making distressed sounds. What would you smell? There are, there are smells associated with slaughtering an animal. You know, animals don't smell good on the outside. They smell worse on the inside. And that's before their flesh is burned, which is part of this, this equation. Additionally, recall from Leviticus that many of these sacrifices, they, ref, they, they, they required the offerer to slaughter that animal. It, it wasn't that you just took, took the, the lamb or the goat or whatever it was on a leash and just took it to daycare, so to speak, and you walked away trying to think about what was going to happen, not trying not to think about it, but rather Leviticus required the offerer, the person bringing the offering, to slaughter that animal 
to cut it into, the, into pieces. And then the priest would put those pieces on the altar. And so the, the, the blood of that animal is literally on your hands. If you've ever slaughtered an animal, you know how difficult it is to confine that blood to anything other than your hands. In fact, generally, you, you get it all over you. You're covered in blood. And, and, and uh, an animal that has just died, its, blor- its blood, how do, you, how do you think that blood feels? It's warm. It's strikingly warm. And, and, and as that blood dries on your hands and, and, and becomes cooler, you can feel the life extinguished. So it's, it's not just, hey, we just keep having these sacrifices, but rather four, at least four of your five senses are being assaulted every day with this reality. It, there, there's, this, there's this undeniable clue right in front of your face. Our, sin, our sins are still here. And then the next day, they're still here. And a year later, they're still here. And the only logical conclusion is, hey, these sacrifices don't take away sin. And, and that's exactly what he writes in verse 4. And we get there another reason that we shouldn't be surprised by the inability of the law to perfect. Verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We spent a good, a good bit of time considering that reality a few sermons ago, so, so I won't go deeply into that again. But just remember, animals can't cover the sins of man. They, they cannot do it. So the law, with all of its provisions, could not perfect the sinner couldn't bring us near to God, couldn't address the root problem. As, as we began this morning, I gave an example of how our, our culture can tend to misdiagnose our, our root problem. We think, some of us maybe, that, that our, our biggest problem is that we don't have a sense of belonging. Another way that our culture misdiagnoses the root issue is by is by feeling the weight of a lack of significant identity. See, we we do have an innate sense of significance due to our being created in the image of God. However, because of our rejection of God, we are left to make sense of that significance somehow. And without God, the search for identity only leads to problems. It only leads to terrible places. And so people who are convinced that my, my root issue is is, is not having a sense of, of identity, significance, or, or being able to explain why I'm different than, than an animal. And so they, they solve that ancillary problem, or seek to, as if it were the ultimate problem, thinking things like, man, if I just have a sense of significance and identity, everything will be okay. And the proposed solutions to that problem are, are endless. We, we, may, we may think to ourselves... I need to be the best at something, and, and that, would, that would do it. Or I need to be the best looking. Or I need to be admired. I need to be famous. I need to, I need to understand who I am, what I am, and feel good about it. And I, I need to see everyone else feeling good about it. I need self-esteem. These, these are people who, people who realize that, that they are people with a real problem, certainly. But, but ignoring the root problem which they need to be perfected. That's the root problem. 
They need to be cleansed of sin, forgiven, and united with God. And just like all these Old Testament sacrifices that couldn't do the job, so also all of these solutions, they can't do the job because they haven't even recognized the right job. Why would we devote our lives to something that can't do what we need it to do? There could be any number of ways that those among us, those who claim the name of Jesus, are trying to do something less than ultimate, trying to solve a problem that is less than ultimate as if it is ultimate, and therefore we are, we are missing the big picture, spinning our wheels. The law couldn't perfect, the text tells us, but next the, the author puts in front of us, Jesus answered the call. Jesus answered the call. Look at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. Now, these verses are are not to to say that, that Jesus was plan B of some sort. As if God, He fully intended fully intended to perfect everybody through the law, but, but, but it didn't work, and so he ends up saying to the son, look, you're, you're just going to have to go down there. That, that is not what happened. Jesus' plan A, Genesis 3.15 tells us that a man was going to come and make all things right. Not animals, not a tabernacle, not any of those things. There's going to come a person to fix these things, and we know that to be Jesus. Now, we have a quotation here from Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is a lament of David, wherein he laments trouble that he's having with some of his enemies, and he's asking God to deliver him. You can take some time on your own to to consider the whole of that psalm. We're concerned mainly with verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 40. David makes explicit his conviction, his core belief, that what God really wants is not slaughtered animals, But God wants His very life. David David is saying to the Lord, "You, you don't want sacrifices. I understand. I understand that you want me, and I have said to you, here I am. This is the other side of that of that coin of our root problem. We're separated from God and we need God. The other side of that of that coin is God also wants us. He wants us, and David recognizes this and surrenders to it. And that's an idea that's not unique to Psalm 40. We find it in other places too. You could write down Deuteronomy 6, 1 Samuel 15, Isaiah 1, Psalm 50, Micah 6. God wants you, not dead animals. To be sure, under the Old Covenant, all those animal sacrifices, they were intended to show one's devotion to the Lord. Absolutely, that's what they were intended to do. We saw that in Leviticus chapter 1 last year. But very quickly, the people began to offer sacrifices in the absence of devotion to Yahweh. In other words, they would take their sacrifices and offer those and then live however they wanted. Live like those that were not devoted to God, rather, were devoted to sin and death. And so that's why Isaiah said, and and later Jesus quoted him, this people, they honor me with their lips. They honor me externally, but their hearts are far from me. In Psalm 40, David is is setting himself apart as something different. 
I, I, Yahweh, I haven't gotten caught up in this, caught up in this idea that, that all you really want is dead animals. I know that's not the truth. I have understood, and now I live in light of the fact that you want my life. Now, the Bible presents David as a type or a picture of the coming Christ. The New Testament authors, understanding this, they read the things that David lived, the things that David wrote, as forecasting realities about Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. So when the author of Hebrews reads Psalm 40, understanding David as a picture of Christ, he sees in these verses Jesus saying these things. I know that animal sacrifices aren't the end goal. You've given me a body. I'm here to do your will. And then the author of Hebrews, he quotes those verses again. You see in your Bibles, you see, you see Psalm 40, those verses set off. They're, they, are, they are typed differently than the rest of the passage, but he quotes it again in the following verses. Why would he do that? Well, he abbreviates the quote a little bit, but then he adds some commentary to it. And the commentary is what we want to pay attention to. First of all, there's a parenthetical phrase or clause at the end of verse 8. Look at, at that material in the parentheses in verse 8. These are offered according to the law. Why why would he offer that commentary? Because he wants us to associate, he wants us to associate all of those sacrifices that God didn't want according to Psalm 40. He wants us to associate those with the law. The law gave us these sacrifices. It's not a matter of finding a better sacrifice within the law. It's a matter of finding a better covenant. These sacrifices don't work. They're tethered to the law. If these sacrifices don't take away sin, then the law doesn't fix the problem. And that's what he's already said back in verse 1. The law couldn't make perfect. Couldn't do what we needed it to. And so, he gives further commentary in the middle of verse 9. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Jesus, by putting himself forward as a sacrifice, he set aside the law. Set aside the law's sacrifices to make way for something better the new covenant in His blood, something that would actually fix the problem. And that's important to see, to see that the author is deducing from, from Psalm 40, the Psalm 40 quotation, that Jesus, when he, when he says, the sacrifices of the law don't work here, I'm here, He is saying, that's gone and something new has come. Jesus came to do God's will. And look at verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Those of us who have studied a a lot of theology, we we likely see the word sanctification and we think of that word as progressively becoming more and more like Jesus Christ in our character and conduct. And that's that's a great way to think of that word. It's not the way that he's using the word here. Because there's another sense that, that the New Testament teaches about sanctification. He's talking about our being set apart as belonging to God in holiness. Our being set apart as belonging to God in holiness. This is just another way of saying that Jesus' sacrifice has cleansed us from sin so that we might be brought spotless to God. In other words, J- Jesus has done what the law could not. And that's a, a, a great segue to the next move in the author's argument, which is, in a nutshell, that Jesus finished the job. Jesus finished the job.
The law couldn't make us perfect. Jesus said, I can, and He did. He finished it. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. He's bringing us back once again to that stuff that he's mentioned already earlier in in the section. This verse summarizes much of what was in verses 1 through 4. But as I mentioned here, he notes daily priestly service. Daily, repeated sacrifices. The same sacrifices. He doesn't want us to lose that characterization of the law as something that it's just doing the same thing over and over to no avail. He does that again so that he can now contrast that with Jesus' ministry in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. The Old Testament priests, they kept offering the same sacrifices over and over. They did that because the sacrifices were making no dent in the sin problem. Their standing and remaining at work meant that the work of perfection wasn't being accomplished. Jesus, on the other hand, he makes one sacrifice and sits down. He mentioned that back in chapter 1. He actually began this, this book with that idea. Jesus, upon doing His work on the cross, rising from the dead, He ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down. Now, Jesus sitting is being contrasted with the priests standing. The priests standing continually meant that the work was not done. It was not fixing the problem. Jesus sitting down then means what? It means that the work is done. There's there's no better way to say it than than the author does in verse 14. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One offering has removed the stain of sin such that those who repent and trust in Christ, they are able to enter God's presence. And and, and look at the way that He describes Jesus' work. There's no expiration date on this. We, we, we don't need to re-up like we would in the military. We don't need Jesus occasionally to top off our account. We don't need to top off our account. He has perfected us for all time. Now, there's one way that we might misunderstand this in light of these Old Testament sacrifices. We might think, well, those Old Testament sacrifices, they were making atonement. They were fixing the problem. It's just that the people kept sinning. And, and, and so that's why the, the, they needed, they needed a, another atonement. The, the, the people just kept sinning. They, they were being covered. So they were adding, adding sins on top of it. That is not the way to see this. That is not the truth. Remember, the author of Hebrews reminded us uh, of what we learned in Leviticus. The offerings made at the tabernacle were for unintentional sins. What, what we would call accidents, oversights, misunderstandings. Not high-handed, rebellious sins. Not, not sins where people knew what they were doing is wrong and did it anyway. Things that we have done and do frequently. No, no sacrifice for those kinds of things. Coveting where, where you want something that someone else has. I won't ask for a show of hands because you should all raise them. Have you ever wanted something that somebody else had? There is no sacrifice for that under the Old Covenant. Nothing. And the penalty is death. Lust, 
goes untouched by the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. Dishonesty, untouched. Disobedience to authority, untouched. It it, it wasn't just that there was a time constraint on those circumstances such that they couldn't be used to cleanse people for future sins. They're they're fine for for present and past, but they they just can't forgive future sins. They couldn't cleanse people from sin at all. And so the big difference between those sacrifices in Jesus is not that Jesus has this additional category that He cleanses future sins. No, the difference is Jesus covers all sin. These other sacrifices, they cover none. What the law could not do in daily sacrifices, year after year, over hundreds of years, Jesus did in an afternoon. mentioned earlier one one way that we misfire on this whole thing is recognizing what the root problem is. So we get it. We we get that our our root problem is is separation from God because of sin. But we misfire by then looking for all the wrong solutions, things that cannot fix it. And I mentioned that some people try to to do good deeds to cover up their their bad deeds. There's a variation of this that sneaks its way into the lives of people like us, people we might say who who know better. We we say, yes, Jesus, is he he got me in the door, but but here's the variation. But I've got to keep me in. Every time I sin after my conversion, that jeopardizes my relationship with God, and I've got to make it right by doing better. So all of of our faith and hope then becomes like a mirror looking at ourselves. I'm trusting in me to keep me right with God. I'm trusting in me so that I have hope for eternity. Absolutely, the New Testament teaches that our obedience pleases God, but not in the sense that it obtains, ensures, or prolongs our relationship with Him. That is all of Jesus. By a single offering, He has perfected us. That is, He has cleansed us and secured our forgiveness for all time. For all sins, not just the past or the present, but for all sins of a lifetime. He has taken care of it in one sacrifice. And the conclusion that we should draw ought to be obvious to us. We need no no further sacrifice. We need no further sacrifice. Look at verse 15. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with him after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on our minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The Holy Spirit bears witness to us here through Jeremiah. This is a quotation from Jeremiah 31. The author already referred to this passage back in chapter 8. But back in chapter 8, his point was that the promise of a new covenant means that the old covenant has been removed. Here, he's highlighting something else. He's adding something else with that phrase, Then he adds in verse 17. And then he adds. What does he add? That's what he really wants us to latch on to. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds 
no more. Remembering sins and lawless deeds no more. That is Old Testament language for forgiveness. And his point is that through what Jesus did, we have that. We have forgiveness. Our, 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 our sins, all our sins, the ones we're going to commit tomorrow, are not held against us by God because Jesus paid for them on the cross. There is no wrath left for those sins. We are forgiven unto reconciliation with God. We are able to enter His presence. The root problem is solved. I suggested a question at the beginning of our time this morning. Does my life reflect the truth that I understand the problem and that I've trusted in the one solution? Does my life reflect the truth that I understand the problem and I've trusted in the one solution? Now, what what would that look like? Split it into the two pieces. What will my life look like if I have understood the root problem? I would suggest to you that if I understand the root problem and understand it as the problem, the root problem, then I will not devote my life to ancillary issues and finding temporal solutions to those ancillary issues. I'll not be chasing my problem of loneliness as if my life depended on it because my life doesn't depend upon it. I'll not be searching for belonging or identity as if those were ultimate things because I understand those are not ultimate things. Having been reconciled to God, my root issue has been fixed. So that, that solution, which is forgiveness in Christ, that's where I'm going to look for identity. That's where I'm going to look for belonging. That's where I'm going to look for mission, etc. Everything goes back to the solution of that main problem. The other piece of that, what what will my life look like if if I have trusted in the right solution to that, that main problem? Forgiveness through faith in Christ. Well, similarly, my life is not going to be all about tangential issues. I'm not going to substitute something in place of the gospel as my central message. This is something that sneaks its way into our lives as well. We're, we're people, we've followed Jesus Christ, but, but a way that we, that we depict to the world that, that we are not trusting in that one main solution is that some peripheral theological issue, it becomes the thing to us, almost as if it is our God. And belief like I believe on this issue, this is what separates the wheat from the chaff. This this one thing, this is what separates the sheep from the goats. In other words, very similar to the Galatians, we've taken the gospel and we've just set it aside and we have put something else in its place. That is what it looks like to understand the root problem but to misunderstand the solution. It's one way that we do it. If we understand the the actual solution to our problem, the details of our lives, they will remain the details of our lives. But the main thing will remain the, the main thing. We will be all about Jesus Christ, all about knowing Him, all about becoming like Him, all about making Him known in the church and in the world. Said another way, 
we'll not be spinning our wheels on lesser things. Now, we do have real problems, as I've noted. We have difficult relationships. Some of us have financial issues, either either in our, our, our homes or our businesses. We have struggles of various kinds, and, and I don't want to imply that those things don't matter at all, that God doesn't care about those things. I'm not saying that at all. But if we understand the root problem and its solution, we will approach those other lesser problems with the confidence and peace of someone who eternally has it made. Do you understand that? If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you have it made. And these other problems that you have will be approached with that mindset. I've got it made, but I'm going to fix the gutters on my house. I've got it made, but I'm going to go see the doctor about this elbow. In other words, we'll not say, well, my gutters have to be done. I don't know how it's going to get done. This is the worst thing that can happen. This elbow, it means I'm, I'm getting old, I'm going to die, and this is the worst thing possible. No, I've got it made because of what Christ has done. There is so much more that we could do with these things, but I'll leave it to the Holy Spirit to speak to us individually. And I encourage you in the coming moments after I pray, we we observe a a few moments of silent reflection, that, that you would ask the Holy Spirit, what would you have me to do with these things? Let's pray. Father, your word is magnificent. It is big. There there are so many things in your Bible. So many things in it. And and yet, if if we look at your word big big picture, Lord, we, we, we find it to be something like a broken record. It's telling us over and over what our problem is. Over and over what the solution is. And yet we confess to you, Lord, that, that we need to hear that song over and over again. Pray that you would grant us to hear it anew this morning. We would be convinced once again, yes, biggest problem we could ever have is separation from you. But hallelujah, you have solved that problem by sending Jesus Christ to suffer and die and rise again for our sins. Father, some among us may have never availed themselves of life in Christ. They have never turned from their sin and trusted in Him. Father, would you make it the case that today is the day for them? Would you lead them to despair over their separation from you? Lead them to hate their sin. Lead them to see Jesus is the only hope. The only hope. Move them to trust in Him, Father. We ask in Jesus' name.